0: We are up to mitzvah number 65, and this is a similar mitzvah to the previous mitzvah that we did, and this is the mitzvah not to oppress widows and orphans. So we had the mitzvah last time of having extra sensitivity towards converts, people who may feel a little bit weak and vulnerable, and the same mitzvah, the same concept is extended to widows and orphans people that are a little bit more vulnerable and therefore we are given an extra mitzvah to not oppress them. Of course, there's a mitzvah to not oppress any Jew, but this is an extra mitzvah for the widows and the orphans. We are also going to do mitzvah number 591, a related mitzvah, and that is to not take a collateral from a widow, meaning that if you lend money to anyone, sometimes you take like a surety or a a collateral to make sure in the event that the borrower does not repay the loan, you have some collateral that you use instead of repayment. However, there's a mitzvah Torah, explicit mitzvah Torah in the book of Deuteronomy that tells us that if it is a widow to whom you are lending, then you may not collect a collateral from her. That's a similar idea that there's an extra protection given to these vulnerable people. So this is the mitzvah that we should not in any way, not, of course, physically, not emotionally, not verbally. We shouldn't oppress the widows and the orphans. Now, the succeeding verses, this verse appears in Exodus chapter 22. The succeeding verses tell us something very scary and demonstrate how severe it is. It says, if we do oppress them and they cry out to God, God promises that he is going to hearken to their cry. And the verse tells us, this is verse 23 of chapter 22, my anger will flare up against you. I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children will become orphans. If you mistreat the widows and the orphans, God is promising to have that tragic and sad situation appear in your family. God's going to kill you and your children will be orphans and your wife and your wives will be widows. Now, Rashi quotes from the Talmud that explains that this is actually a double punishment. Because the verse says, God promises to kill you. And as a result, Your wives will be widows and your children will be orphans. But obviously, if someone's dead, then their wife is a widow and their children are orphans. So Rashi explains that this is a double curse. Because when someone, God forbid, becomes a widow, someone, God forbid, forbid becomes an orphan, at least they have closure. At least they know where they're standing. But what happens if the man goes off to war and is missing in action – And they're in limbo. They don't know, is he actually dead? Was he kidnapped? Is he missing? Did did he decide to go visit some foreign country? He'll be back. And that is a double curse because the kids can't inherit their father's estate. The wife can't remarry. They're in limbo. They're widows and orphans, but even worse than standard widows and orphans. Now, the Ramban here says something very interesting. He says that... The cry of the widow and the orphan is so efficacious and it right away unleashes, so to speak, the godly sword. And he explains the reason for it. Why does the orphan and the widow, why do they have such power in their prayer? All they do is scream out to God and God right away avenges them. So the Ramban explains that every other person They have a fallback option. They have friends. They got family. They have people they know. They always have someone to rely on. And here we have people that have lost their protector. They have lost their rock. And now they have no one to rely on besides for God. When someone has complete and total reliance on God, then God responds in a commensurate fashion. And God takes care of them in a very specific and direct way. And all you got to do is holler for God and he comes to your aid. Now, the reason for this mitzvah, of course, the reason for every mitzvah is because God tells us to do it. But the Sefer HaChinuch, the word that we are using to guide us through the 613 mitzvahs, he tries to make the mitzvah a little bit more relevant by telling us a little bit of the reason why we should do it. And he explains That these people are weak, and they are vulnerable, and they have no one to defend them, and they have no one to advocate on their behalf, and therefore, in the ways of kindness and benevolence and mercy and goodness, God wants us to be great people and to be kind and benevolent, and therefore, He tells us when you see someone who's vulnerable, when you see someone who is needy, when you see someone who doesn't have protectors, you fill that gap and you have mercy and kindness towards him and you should try to treat them much better than you would if their father slash husband were alive. Now, the Midrash adds an an amazing insight. The Midrash asks the question, why does God love the widows and the orphans so much? So the quotes a verse in Psalms. The verse describes God as the father of orphans and the judge of widows. Says the Midrash, if someone steals from these people, from widows and orphans. It's as if they stole from God because God adopts them. They become part of, so to speak, his family. And therefore, if you attack, so to speak, God's family, God will respond uh, jealously and get revenge against you. This is an amazing insight that when you have someone who loses a relative, a father, God forbid, a husband, God forbid. The Almighty says, okay, I'm going to fill that void and I'm going to, so sort to of speak, adopt this child, take care of this family. It's my responsibility. It's on my back. My grandfather, of blessed memory, I may have told the story in the past, when he passed away, so I happen to have actually been with him in the hospital, both when he was brought into the hospital a couple of days before he passed, and right after he passed, I was there. We hustled over to the hospital. But anyhow, they brought out his last will and testament. He had written one. He was always someone who was ready to die, which is, I think, a good attitude in general. So he had had a will written, and it said on the envelope, open it when I die. So... Everyone, of course, was super curious what it actually said inside of it. So, right when he passed away, within an hour, people were reading the will. So, the first thing that he writes in the will, you should know that my actual will is found in my book that I wrote, Alay Shur, on page 303. He had managed to camouflage his own will in his book – because he has a section in his book that deals with preparing to die, and he says it's appropriate for everyone to write an ethical will to their children, and therefore, I'll give you a sample. This is a sample will. And when you read it, it's obvious that it's him writing, but it's at that kind of part of the book that most people aren't really comfortable reading. Whatever talks about death, it's a little scary. So... You open up the will, and he says, go to page 303 in my book. You go to page 303, and boom, you see the letter. But in the letter, he says something fascinating. He quotes a verse in Psalms, chapter 27, which is a little bit topical because now we are in the month of Elul, and on the month of Elul, we read this psalm at the end of the prayer. But the verse says, azavuni." My father and my mother have left me, have abandoned me. And God gathered me in. And he's writing this to his children to be read essentially after he passes. And he says to them, let me tell you what I felt when my parents died. When my parents died, I thought of this verse. My father and my mother have left me. But God gathered me in. Meaning there are three partners in every child, the father, the mother, and God. And God promises when one of those, so to speak, legs of this three-legged stool gets removed and the person feels like they are a little bit vulnerable, God promises, I'm going to step in and make sure that there is stability. Same kind of idea. Someone is an orphan, God says, I got their back. I got their back. I'm going to take the role previously held by their human father, and I'm going to add extra protection, and no one messes with them. No one messes with my kids. You mess with them. You are in big trouble. This is, of course, not only true to an orphan. It's to a widow as well. The Talmud tells us in the book of Sanhedrin, page 22b, That when a man dies, the only person that really suffers is that person's spouse. And when a woman dies, the only person that truly irreparably suffers is her husband. Of course, everyone suffers, but people can get past it. When someone loses a life partner, that's it. Their entire world changes thenceforth. And similarly, we have this idea that the Almighty is going to accelerate or increase, augment his role in the life of the person who recently lost their spouse. Now, there's a beautiful teaching in the Rambam where he talks about how important it is to treat widows and orphans with extra sensitivity. I want to read it to you. A person is obligated to be extra fastidious with widows and orphans because their souls are low and their spirits are weak. And even if they have tons of money, even the widow of a king and the orphans of the king, we have a mitzvah, and we're told to be extra sensitive to them, and it quotes the verse in Exodus chapter 22. And how are we supposed to treat them? We should only speak to them softly. And we should only treat them with honor. And we shouldn't cause them pain, not with physical pain, and not with emotional pain. And we should have concern on their money and their assets more than our own. And anyone who oppresses them, anyone who angers them, anyone who causes them pain, insults them, makes them lose money, behold, they are violating this mitzvah. And even though this mitzvah is not adjudicated by a human court, God promises that he will hearken to their cries and take swift action. However, there is an exception. When there is, let's say, a rabbi, a teacher... Who is oppressing them in order to encourage them to study Torah? Or someone who's teaching them and trying to encourage them to learn a craft or to make them grow in the proper path? Then you are allowed to be intense with the widow, with the orphan, because it's ultimately trying to help them. Nevertheless, you should still treat them a little bit differently and have some extra kindness and extra mercy, and extra honor for these people. Now, until when are they considered orphans? If someone is advanced in years and their father passes away or their mother passes away, are they still considered a technical orphan? Says the Rambam, no. An orphan in this context refers to a young orphan, someone who's not on their own. Once someone is like every other adult, takes care of themselves, then they are out of the category of being a vulnerable orphan. Now, there are many, many laws in the Talmud related to how we are supposed to treat orphans. I want to give a little bit of a sampling of some of the special laws that their property has. So, for example, if someone has a court case, a monetary court case with an orphan. And they are holders of a contract that says that the orphan owes them money. So normally, a contract should be sufficient proof and you wouldn't need any extra proof to be able to track the money. However, there's a special law that if you want to attract money from orphans, you also have to add an oath. You have to swear in a Jewish court of law that even though you have a contract, These people owe you money. The court must also argue and advocate on their behalf. Any argument that these orphans' father could have potentially presented to the court, even though the court normally has to remain impartial, they cannot advance any argument in favor of any of the litigants, when it comes to an orphan, they are obligated to argue on their behalf. And then we're told, suppose there are orphans who have some assets. Their father died, left a big estate. They have assets, but they're little kids. The court appoints a wealth manager for them and an overseer of their assets. They find someone who is independently wealthy, is honest, is trustworthy, and he invests it in a safe investment that's very unlikely to lose money. Puts it in, I don't know, bonds. United States bonds. That would be maybe a good example. Talmud tells us more generally, they have the advantage in every business dealings. So for example, there's cases where there's an agreement and then it's partially finalized and normally other people won't be able to retract And get out of the deal, but the orphans could. If you are collecting from orphans, you can only collect from the most inferior quality property. The Talmud, for example, talks about three different classes of property. Just like we have today. We have the a class A property, a class B, a class C. There's class A, class B, class C. You have various fields, for example, that they yield identical amount of produce a year but one of them is 1 acre and one of them is 10 acres obviously the one that is 1 acre even though it produces the identical amount of produce it's obviously more fertile it produces a greater bounty and therefore it is more valuable even though maybe the the actual produce that both fields yield is identical but when you collect from orphans, you can only collect from the most inferior quality property and the best property you have to leave to them. So those are some of the laws related to mitzvah number 65, the sensitivity towards orphans and widows. We have mitzvah number 591, a very similar idea, and that is that we cannot collect a collateral from a widow. And the idea is similar, that we have to treat them with extra sensitivity and extra mercy. And therefore, when you lend her money, you don't take a collateral. Now, the Talmud adds another reason that we know, in general, when someone takes a collateral from a borrower, whenever the borrower needs that particular item, the lender has to go return it. You lend someone money and you take as collateral their pillow. Every night, they're going to need the pillow. You have to go return it to them. And then in the morning, you come and collect it again. What's going to be, you have a widow and she has fallen under hard times and she has to borrow money. And some nice gentleman lends her some money and he takes a collateral. And now, every night and every morning, this gentleman is just appearing on the door of the widow. Suddenly, all the neighbors start gossiping. What's going on? Is maybe this widow striking up a relationship with this individual? And therefore, says the Talmud, another reason why we do not collect collaterals from widows is to remove any stain of suspicion on the widow in the eyes of her friends. Now, there's an interesting teaching in the Talmud about the care for the property of orphans that I wanted to share. Now, the context of this teaching in the Talmud, this is in Brachos page 18b, the context is the tantalizing question of how much do dead people know about the future and about what happens in this world. the Talmud brings all kinds of proofs. Do they know? Do they not know? So it gives us one story as a proof to this question. It tells us that the sage Shmuel, one of the sages of the Talmudic era, early Talmudic era, his father was very reliable, very trustworthy. And therefore, all the assets of orphans, he would be the custodian, he would be the guardian, he would be the trustee of the orphan's assets. And he would hide it. Problem is that when he died, no one was around him. He just died suddenly, and he never revealed the location where he had hidden the money. So now Shmuel, he is being accused by all his friends. Hey, you must have inherited all that money. You're stealing the money of the orphans. So Shmuel, how is he supposed to figure out where the money went? So he goes to the cemetery and he starts talking to the dead. And he says to the dead, I say, I want to speak to my father. So they say to him, your father, who were like, which fathers? Lots of fathers here. He says, well, I want Abba Bar-Aba. Abba, the son of Abba. So they say to him, well, there's a lot of people with that name. So he says, okay, I want Abba bar Abba, the father of Shmuel. He identifies exactly who he wants. Where do I find him? So they say to him, go to the heavenly academy. Now, I don't know exactly how Shmuel did this. But apparently he was able to go into this heavenly academy. He was able to transition, so to speak, to the next world to be able to ask his dad where the money is. Anyhow, the Talmud gives us a side story that he goes to the academy and he sees one of the great sages who's not allowed into the academy. So he asks him, why are you not in the academy with all the other sages? He says to him, well, there's a reason why I was not allowed entry. Meanwhile, Shmuel, this great sage, he meets his father. And his father is happy to see him and he's laughing, but he's also really sad. He's also crying. So he says to him, why are you crying? He says, I'm crying because I know that you're going to be here with me soon. So why are you laughing? Why are you so delighted? He says, because I know that in this world, you are held in the highest regard. Everyone here is so impressed with you. You're such a great sage, such a great scholar, that everyone here thinks very highly of you. So he says to them, okay, well, if everyone thinks highly of me, that other sage that was outside, I want to use my clout to allow him to go in. And indeed, they granted that sage entry into the heavenly academy. Finally, Shmuel says to his father, where is the money of the orphans? So he tells him. He says, it's buried in the, or it's hidden in the mill house. And then what he did is he created a money sandwich. The money on top is your money. It's our money. The money on bottom is also our money. The money in the middle, that's the money that belongs to the orphans. So why did he do that? He says to him like this I was worried that thieves are going to break into the mill house, they're going to discover the money, and they're going to grab it. And therefore, the money on top, let them steal our money if they steal any money. And then I was worried what if the earth swallows up some of the money? And I don't want the money of the orphans to be affected. And therefore, I said, okay, the money at the bottom is also going to be ours. So if there's any damage or any loss of money, it's going to be to our money and not to the orphan's money. So therefore, you know, the money on top is ours. The one on bottom is also ours. And the money in the middle is going to be the money of the orphans. I think this is another example of the extra sensitivity towards orphans and, of course, towards widows to make sure that if money is lost, let it be our money to be extra sensitive, to provide extra care for the assets of these vulnerable people in fulfilling this particular mitzvah. Now, the postscript of the story is that Shmuel didn't die the next day. And the question is, if his father was crying because he's coming soon, how did he know if it wasn't imminent? The Talmud's under the impression that maybe the dead do know who's about to join them, but only if it's imminent. If it happens a week or month later, then they wouldn't know that. So the Talmud speculates, well, maybe that's true in general, but because Shmuel is such a great sage, they, they clear away someplace, they make the arrangements ahead of time, because everyone's so excited that Shmuel, the great sage, is going to join their ranks. I want to conclude with an amazing story about the Chafetz Chaim maybe the greatest Jewish sage of the turn of the century from the 19th to the 20th century. And he said that he once saw a landlord taking a widow and her children and orphans and evicting them from his house. They, of course, didn't have the money to pay for the rent and, of course, they were devastated about that, but he was very precise and he says, okay, you don't have the money, I'm evicting you. 30 years later, the son of this landlord, I think was bitten by a rabid dog and died in a horrific way. The problem was, because he was infected, no one wanted to bury him. The Chavra Kaddish, the burial society, said, we're not touching this person. We don't want to catch what he had. So he had to bury his own child with his own hands. And the Chavetz Chaim said, I was waiting for something like this to happen. I was waiting. I knew that the Almighty would not allow this crime against the widow and the orphans to go unanswered. And for some reason, he must have lasted for 30 years before it happened. Maybe he had some merit and that was able to stave off, that was able to forestall his punishment. But I knew for sure it was coming. I was waiting for it. And here, indeed, it came. The Torah is very severe in this particular mitzvah. We cannot mistreat or oppress the widows and orphans in any way. And if we do... God promises he's going to unleash his sword and cause terrible things to happen to us. So that's a little bit of the flavor of this mitzvah. Again, it's something I think that we probably naturally would feel if there's someone to whom so much misfortune has befallen, someone who is so uh, underprivileged. It's someone that we naturally tend to give a little bit more kindness towards. But now we have a mitzvah that tells us that the Almighty is adopting this family, so to speak, and we have to be extra super sensitive to make sure that we treat them properly with gentleness, with kindness, with benevolence, with understanding when we speak to them, not speak to them harshly, and treat them with delicateness befitting their stature. My email address is rabbiwobajim.com. I look forward to hearing any questions, any comments, any feedback of any kind. I deeply appreciate it.